In the name of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, in the name of the one who is, who was and who is to come, I greet you. Good morning, saints. Good morning, Good morning sinners. Good morning. That wasn't different, was it? We've still got a little bit of a split here. As, as we talked about last week, um, a liminal learning, today is going to be part two. And I'm picking up a couple of words, well, more than a couple, but we'll be picking up a couple of words uh, suffering and waiting, and you can see them there uh, on the screen. Um, suffering and waiting. Last week, uh, you would, would, would recall um, that uh, we were talking about being George in between two places. Do you need some therapy about your own life? Uh, another time. Um, but a liminal space uh, is you know, we're on a threshold, God is seeking us to grow and develop and have us on the edge. Uh, it can often be an uncomfortable place, this in-between place. When we're caught between two places, uh, it can be quite uncomfortable. But it is the place where God works best. Uh, and that will be a part of the theme. Just so remembering those words, hold them if you can, uh, as we continue through our time together today. Uh, that in-between or liminal space is the place where God works best best. Scott Peck uh, is uh, uh, passed away now, um, but a psychotherapist uh, from the United States, a very interesting writer. Uh, his first book was called The Road Less Travelled, uh, and it started off with these three words. Life is difficult. Duh. Uh, and it's not meant to be depressing uh, or to be negative, and it's not as he writes through the book, of course, uh, but it's a, a facing a reality and it's naming a truth, isn't it? That life is difficult. Life wasn't meant to be easy, somebody um, said somewhere in the past in our story. Um, in fact, they were misquoting it from somewhere else. And, so, and, and also just to play, again, I'm just putting some building blocks in place now uh, for the, the opportunity that we'll have to have a dialogue uh, in a little bit later to pick up some of these themes. Um, we, we are to know Christ. Philippians 3, 10 uh, suggests that we are to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, it can be easy, of course, to focus on our personal story of suffering, pain or tiredness. And there are some branches who shall remain nameless of um, Christendom, of the church, or churches if you like, there are some branches that particularly focus in on suffering. Oh, woe is me. Things are so bleak and black. Oh, oh. Of course, we are to know Christ, the fellowship of his suffering, but also to know the power of his resurrection. And that's the interesting balance that we're called to experience uh, as followers of Jesus. And this power, the power of his resurrection, uh, this power produces life and joy and hope and laughter and imagination and health and growth and the capacity to adapt and change and the kind of deep community that emerges from sharing a common cause that is designed to change the world. Yes, suffering, and we're going to focus a little bit on that today, but also we keep in balance and, and to check us, I guess, as well, uh, the power of his resurrection. And um, um, this is part of our dilemma for today. I like to give dilemmas. Um, suffering. Uh, talking about suffering and waiting is the two main theme words for today. Probably the last book that Peck wrote was called The Denial of the Soul. Denial of the Soul. And it was talking, it's talking about euthanasia uh, in particular and mortality, but particularly 
uh, euthanasia. And the thesis of, of Peck's book here, uh, this book, particular book, is really interesting. He says that dying can be the opportunity of a lifetime for learning and soul development. Now, let me repeat that. Dying can be the opportunity of a lifetime for learning and soul development. He's particularly talking about euthanasia, and that, of course, is a hot topic, and there may be people with different views that you know or that we might even have, but in his position, he's saying this. Euthanasia short-circuits the opportunity for learning and soul development. So that's soul denial. That's what he's calling it. By opting for euthanasia, one denies the very meaning of human existence. He or she tries to escape from the reason for our being. In a very real sense, euthanasia is an attempt to short-circuit God. As such, however, it not only short-changes God, even more important, it short-changes ourselves. And so this question of suffering, uh, we have this choice when we suffer and when we're caught in times of waiting around suffering, uh, we, we have this choice. We can see it as an opportunity for soul development, you know, the development of our true inner being, a character, who we really are. Or, on the other hand, we can actually deny that soul development. His thesis is that euthanasia, taking it suffering right to the end game, if you will, uh, is that euthanasia uh, actually denies the soul. And those of us who've walked with or who have worked with those who walk with, those who are in the last days sometimes of a quite difficult terminal illness will know the amazing growth that there is in the serving and the caring for and the sacrificial loving for that person that is in their last months or days. We have this choice. Do we choose soul development or do we choose soul denial? Uh, and, and so suffering, I'm changing his, uh, his, the quote of his book, suffering can be the opportunity of a lifetime for learning and soul development. Uh, another quote from him, it's no accident that dying, again, he's, he's, his book is going to the end game, we're talking about suffering, but we'll use his book as, the, as, the, as a helpful uh, tool today. It's no accident that dying is both the greatest of life's learning opportunities and life's greatest adventure. An adventure is a journey into the unknown. If we know exactly where we're going, how we'll get there, what we'll see along the way, and what we will find when we arrive, it's not an adventure. There's also no learning involved. We learn only through adventures. Adventures. So these two words again that we're using today are suffering, waiting. Number of building blocks, I'm repeating, to where we're going to go in dialogue in a moment. I way too often say you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose your response. Usually we don't choose what happens to us and usually we can choose our response in that situation or circumstance. And so a text for today uh, is from James 1, just a few verses. It's there on the screen as I read it. Consider it a sheer gift, friends. Consider it a sheer gift, friends. 
when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colours. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Soul development. Soul development. Count it all joy, the old translation put it. Consider it a sheer gift when tests and challenges come your way. As I said last week, um, today we're going to have something of a more personal uh, story about this uh, liminal uh, space, this waiting space in the context of suffering. And so, um, Amanda, I'd like to invite my uh, wife up to share the platform with me. So where would we like to start? Um, there's a few steps in this story that we could talk about, isn't there? Let's, uh, we won't start at the very beginning, <laughs> because that's a long, long time ago. Um, but uh, let's start with the first story that you've got around waiting and learning. Okay. When Paul asked me to share um, a most recent experience about waiting, I realised that there had been a number of different experiences throughout my life, as there will have been in yours, where waiting was different and the answer was different and the experience was different. And I just wanted to say that there's no, there's no one rule, there's no one template on how to deal with waiting. It can be different for each of us, so I've got no answers at all. But I've got four, four experiences where the waiting for me was really different. Two I'll just skim through because they were a long time ago and most, the two most recent I'll, I'd like to share a bit deeper if that's okay. So the first one? Was way back in 2006. Um, that's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. But it started even earlier than that. My older sister died of breast cancer related illness. And so from a very, very young age, I was tested every year for, for uh, any symptoms of breast cancer. I had to go and have my annual mammogram and my ultrasound every year, well, whatever year, all of that, every year. And that just became a routine for me. And along the way, a few times there were queries and biopsies because there were cysts and I evidently have <coughs> very dense breasts um, other people would say I'd have dense other things as well, but anyway, um, so I had biopsies. So, so it was just routine for me. So in 2006, when there was another biopsy uh, and I had to wait for a week uh, to get the results, um, I didn't really think about it at all. Um, I, it wasn't on my mind, um, it was just routine. Um, yeah, yeah, I've got to go to see the doctor at that time. Yeah, let's go. It's just nothing. And so that period of waiting for the week was really a, a denial waiting because I didn't even think, I didn't prepare, I didn't worry about it. So when the diagnosis of um, actually you have breast cancer was given, it was a total shock, completely out of left field because I had done no thinking, no preparation, no consideration of the possibilities of what would be at the end of the waiting. So that waiting period was, a, was denial in the waiting. I didn't use it. 
uh, and so the, the shock was quite was quite um, stark. So I had surgery for, for breast cancer and then after that happened there was the second period of waiting and that was for the results of whether the cancer had spread uh, and what was the next steps for us. So it was like sitting in the middle of a roundabout um, in that waiting period where I could see, or we could see, several roads going from the roundabout, but we didn't know which one we were going to end up travelling down. If this was the result, we would go have chemotherapy. If this was the result, it would be a mastectomy. If this was the result, well, we'd prepare to, for the worst. And so we were sitting in this roundabout, and every now and again, I would be tempted to travel down a road a little bit. As we are often, aren't we? And I'd have to pull myself back and say, you don't have to go there yet. It's a rabbit hole, or it becomes a rabbit hole. You need to sit and wait. But while we were waiting, we planned. So we had all the books and the magazines and the information in front of us, and I can remember sitting up in... We weren't that involved with Dr Google in those days. No, there was no Dr Google. It was just all pamphlets. So we're sitting in bed looking at what happens when you have chemotherapy, what happens when you have mastectomy, what are the, looking at all the things, and we had our plan. So we knew that whatever road we were told we were going to have to go down, we knew what we were going to do. So that time of waiting was very different to the first because it was um, planning in the waiting. We had our strategy, right? But we had to stay in the roundabout. So they were the first two, it was denial in the waiting and then a planned waiting. Mm. Yep. Skip forward 10 years. Oh, sorry, what was the outcome? Quickly, just a sentence, same case. Quickly. Oh, I was, no. I, I had to have um, limited treatment but didn't have to go down any of those roads very far, which was a real blessing. Um, yeah. Okay, the third. Skip forward 10 years. 10 right? years. 2016. <laughs> I'm healthy, I'm well, I'm working in an organisation that I was passionate about and really enjoying my work. But the organisation started to go through uh, a period of major structural change. And in that process, in, while it was happening, my area started to uh, have to deal with more and more and more of the workload while the others were getting sorted out. So I was pedalling faster and faster and faster and thinking, I am really struggling with this, but it's just because I'm dumb and, and anyone else could cope, and so I just kept going. And then one morning I got up to go to work and I said to Paul, I don't feel very well today. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to go back to bed. And that was the start of eight weeks of um, work-related stress issues, uh, eight weeks off work. Eight weeks, eight weeks in bed almost? Almost. To start with, I was sleeping 10 hours a day, 12 hours a night. Uh, I was diagnosed with mild depression, mild anxiety. If that's mild, I have no idea what a severe anxiety and depression are like because I was totally incapacitated. I was well enough to set goals for the day and my goals at the beginning were three things. One, to walk to the lounge room. 
Two, to have three snacks in the day because I did have, I had no appetite. And three, to contact at least one other person by SMS. I couldn't cope with phone calls, I couldn't cope with visitors. And those three things were a real struggle. And gradually the goals changed and it was to walk to the letterbox and to have a visitor, etc., etc. But for eight weeks, I had to wait. And eight weeks is a long time when you don't know how long it's going to be and you feel like you're actually going mad. Uh, and to wait in that space was, was very difficult. And at times I got very angry and frustrated um, and chucked a wobbly and Paul would say, it is what it is, we're taking one day at a time. But gee, it was hard. And gradually I got through that time emotionally and physically I became stronger. I had help from a psychologist who was very adamant that this was a normal reaction to a toxic work environment. There was nothing wrong with me. It was normal, but boy, it didn't feel normal. So in that eight weeks of waiting, which felt like forever, and was incredibly frustrating, I think God was trying to teach me patience. Um, I think I learned a little bit, but I have a long way to go on that one. But it was patience in the waiting to take one day at a time and let the healing happen. So that was the third one. So we've had uh, denial in waiting <clears throat> and planning in waiting and then slowly some patience in waiting. Um, okay, take us into the next stage, which was not long after uh, that patient waiting learning process. No, was it, it was a steep learning curve in 2016-17. Mm. Part of what happened, I mean, physically your body does interesting things with stress. Um, all sorts of things happen. And one of the things that was happening was that I was having earaches. I went to the GP and the GP gave me antibiotics, two lots, no better. Went to the ENT, ear, nose and throat specialist, no, nothing wrong. Went to temporomandibular specialist, no, nothing wrong. These earache was still there. The ENT specialist said to me, look, while you're here, um, when did you last have a hearing test? You know, at your age. <laughs> so I said, I haven't, I haven't had one. He said, well, you know, while we're working out these earache things, go and have a hearing test just so that we know what's, you know, that everything's okay. So I went off to have a hearing test. It was just another appointment. It's about 837 tests by now that you've had. Another appointment. 9,000 appointments. That's what happens. That's why we retire. We've got time to have all those appointments. <laughs> yes, that's right. To sit in waiting rooms. Anyway, I had my hearing test. And there was a little um, abnormality on the hearing test. Everything was normal. And then one it, frequency. One went. frequency went boom. So back to the ENT specialist, if this is it, he said, hmm, it's probably nothing, but if you want to dot the I's and cross the T's, you could have a brain scan. An interesting concept in itself. Oh, great. Why should I have a brain scan? He said, well, it's probably nothing, but there is a little possibility that um, there could be something wrong with the auditory nerve, and that's why this is happening. So I went home and said, Paul, do I want a brain scan? 
I'm over scans, I'm over tests. Do I, I'm like, okay, let's just go. Why least, not give it a go? Give There's it nothing, a go. nothing, give it a go. nothing Why going. not? But at least prove I've got a brain. So we went and had a brain scan. Which was, of course, part of my thinking. <laughs> so the ENT called me up um, a few days later and very seriously said to me, uh, there's nothing wrong with the auditory nerve, but we have an incidental finding. I think that sort of means luck. An accident. We just mm. bumped into something as we were looking. We just bumped into something on the other side of the brain, totally unrelated, and you have a brain aneurysm. You need to go and see the um, neurosurgeon now. Now, a brain aneurysm is, you have a blood vessel going along, a little weakness in the wall, and the, and the wall bubbles out, okay? Which makes that wall weak, weaker again. So I thought, okay, I've got a brain aneurysm. Off to the neurosurgeon now. The neurosurgeon says to me, you could have been living with this for, for years, or it could have just happened, but there's a 50% chance if, if this aneurysm blows, sort of like a tyre, there's a 50% chance you'll die straight on the spot. And if you don't, there's a 25% chance you'll be permanently disabled. Okay. So out of the blue, nothing, not related to anything else that had happened. No other no related no symptoms. symptoms. I'm, I'm well, I'm healthy, but I'm now told I've got this time bomb in my head. Okay, how do, how do you live with that? Um, so how would you feel? I mean, just keep it, don't do anything and drive the grandsons along in a car? I couldn't put my little boys in the back of a car and drive the car knowing that at any moment this thing could go. What if I was in an accident and killed somebody else? What if I... It blew at home when I was by myself and Paul came home and... But I could live for another 30 years Because or... it might have been there for 30 years or 30 minutes. So not knowing was fine, but as soon as you know, well, that changes everything. So I had a lot of tests so that they could get a better picture of this thing. I had one more test to go and I had some words with God. As you do. I said, God... What I'd really like for you to do this week, if you want to know, I'd like you to heal this aneurysm. I'd like it to go away so that when I go and have this scan on whatever day it was, they would look at the results and not be able to find it. And they would look at the old results from the other scans and it would be there. And I would be able to say... My God did that, and that is an answer to prayer. And I would be able to tell this story everywhere that you answered prayer and formed a miracle in my head. But... You gave him another option as well? I did. <laughs> I said, if that's not what you want to do, if that's not the road that you want to take me on, then that's okay, because you and I are a team, and we're in this together. So whatever you decide, that's okay. So I went to the scan and they did it and there was the aneurysm. So I thought, okay, 
That's God's, that's God's answer for me. Some people would say that God didn't answer my prayer because I wasn't healed. I vehemently disagree. I believe God answered my prayer and he said something like, my precious child, I know that that's what you'd like. I'm not going to do that because I've got something so much better for you. Take my hand, trust me, and wait to see what I'm going to do. So then what happened? Six weeks. I had to wait for surgery. Well, of course, we had those final scans just prior to Christmas, and uh, the neuro was probably going to feed you to play golf or something like that in January. Uh, and so we had to wait till the end of January for the surgery. That's very cynical. I'm sorry, yes, it possibly is. And I would say that I would like my neurosurgeon to be totally rested when he started messing in my brain. Okay, so the idea was that he was going to, you know, not to be too gory, cut down, down my head and peel that back and cut a big hole in the skull and then go in and put a little clip on the aneurysm so that it couldn't burst and then stitch me all up again. Okay, Sounds easy, doesn't it? Except it's my brain. It's my brain. And I, he couldn't guarantee the results, although he was very, very, very positive. They do these things every week, you know, on a Tuesday. Tuesdays are brain surgery days. But not on my brain, they don't. And so for six weeks, I had to wait, knowing that this thing was there. This was my waiting, waiting time. I was quite anxious. I was very frightened. Um, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And it was a very vulnerable place to sit in. And I had some very strong words with God yet again, but this time it was a complaint. I said to him, where is this peace, this peace that passes all understanding that we blurt out about to everybody? Because I haven't got it and I haven't felt it. And so where is it? If you're promising me that, where is it? How come I'm just so stirred up inside when I'm trying to walk with you? Where is, where is this peace? And I was quite cross, and God could take that. And I suddenly realised, as soon as I'd finished, that since I'd had my um, work-related stress issues, I hadn't been sleeping well at night. But I suddenly realised that I'd been sleeping really well at night for these weeks since this diagnosis. The days had been anxious, but the nights had been peaceful. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry. You've actually given me peace when I needed it in the, in the night when I needed sleep to face the next day. I'm sorry, I, I didn't <coughs> see that. And from that day on, my days were filled with peace. It was incredible. I had a calmness um, and a peace in the waiting that um, <laughs> passes all understanding, <laughs> which sounds so trite, but it, but it was very real. Uh, and so in this waiting period, there was, there was a peace. And that peace carried right on to the day that I had to go in to hospital. So I was going in in the afternoon and the surgery was going to be first thing next morning. So I still had some waiting. And this waiting was getting to the critical pointy end of what was going to happen. 
I was in hospital, a room by myself, fortunately. There was no one else in the other bed, near a window. Beautiful little things that made it so much nicer. And Paul was with me, and then 8 o'clock came, and it was time for visiting hours to finish, and he had to go home. We didn't know what life would be like when we saw each other again, if we saw each other again. Because the circumstances of the surgery were that there could have been a different outcome. Because in the process of the surgery, it may not have been an easy as clipping. It could have exploded. Anything could happen. So we didn't know what our next meeting was going to be going to look like. It sounds dramatic, but it it felt dramatic. And so I, I said to Paul, um, it's time for you to go. You have been absolutely, something like this, I can't remember the exact words, you've been absolutely amazing, you have stood by me, you've been my rock, but you can't do any more. God is the only one that can take me through this next period of waiting. He's the only one. And Paul looked at me, still get to he looked me in the eye and he said to me, he is all you need. And he handed me into God's hands and, and left the hospital. So I'm laying there in bed, feeling quite peaceful. I'd done a lot of preparation in this waiting six weeks. I had my Bible chopped full of markers, of, of verses about God walking with you, about the Lord is my shepherd, about there's no need to fear, about perfect love casts out fear. There are all these things in my Bible, so I had that there. I had my um, iPod with all this worship music on it and I had magazines and other things. So I thought, okay, what do I need to get me through this night? This last bit of waiting. So I chose the music. I put my ear, earphones in, earplugs in, and I was listening to this worship music, songs that I had chosen specifically for this night. And they were songs like... Um, I'm no longer a child of fear. I am held in hands of grace and love divine. I know who goes before me. I know who goes behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. It is well with my soul. All these songs that just washed over me with God's, God's blessing. And I was laying there in the dark when the music finished and I started thinking of all the people who'd said they'd pray for me. There were so many people standing with me this night in my waiting. And as I was laying there in the dark, my eyes closed, I saw this picture. Now, I am not one for pictures. In fact, I get really cynical when people say they've seen butterflies and waterfalls and it means God's doing this. I get a little cynical and I shouldn't. So God, in his sense of humour, gave me a picture <laughs> so that I'm not cynical anymore. And this picture was of this big mass of yellow, um, fluffy seed pods. And they were all sort of massed together. And in front of those seed pods were standing, I couldn't see their faces, but I knew they were there, was Paul and my three sons, and my three daughter-in-laws and my two little grandsons. They were in the front in a curve. And there's all these fluffy seed pods. And then 
one seed pod started to come into focus and I saw the face of a person who said they would pray for me. And I'd smile and it went back. And then another one came out, another person that said they'd pray for me. And then it went back. And this kept going. I saw these people who were, said they'd stand with me in this waiting. And I realised that there was a distance between my family and, this, and these pods and me. I was away and, and they couldn't come to me. They couldn't come with me. I was standing um, on this platform away from them. But then I had this really strong, strong sense that God was standing next to me and if this hand he held, I could feel him. And he was with me. No one else could come, but he was standing with me through this experience, through this waiting. And then I went to sleep and I slept this deep sleep until 5.30 or something ridiculous when they wake you up to get you ready for surgery and off I went. That was the end of that waiting, uh, and I had two lousy days in hospital following surgery. Was there for a week. And sent home with a packet of Panadol. Sent home with a clip in my oh, brain, yes. a plate in my skull, 37 staples in my head and a packet of Panadol. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that was the end. That was it. Um, the period of waiting was incredibly intense, but then it was over. And it was the peace in the waiting. Now, if things had gone really differently, and they possibly could have, I may not be standing up here being so chipper about how good God is. I might still be having words with him if I was trying to learn how to live with a major disability. Um, so I'm very aware that in a sense it's easy for me to say how good this is because I'm fine. I just, and I'm also very, very aware that there are people in this room whose stories would be a lot longer and a lot tougher than mine and may not have come out quite as rosy at the end. But this is the only story I've got, so it's the only one I can tell. But I'm not telling it from a, a position of bragging or pride, or that I'm better than anyone else and look what God's done because I'm so good. No, 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 no. I'm sharing this message because of the mystery that God has been in my waiting and in my experience. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why it's happened like it has, but I know that I'm a very, very different person because I've been through this these periods of waiting and in a strange, strange sense I would not swap those experiences for anything. I wouldn't wish them on you but I wouldn't swap them for anything because I have a deeper sense of God and who he is and his presence and I have a, an empathy for others that I could never have had. Don't get it, I don't understand it but I wouldn't change it. Um, And so we've been talking about waiting and the learning in the waiting. We've been talking about suffering that can be a part of that. We've been talking about that liminal space, the place where God works best. 
Uh, we've been hearing the story of that, of how um, it can be the opportunity of a lifetime for learning and soul development. What we don't know is where any of you are at or what any of your stories are. We don't know what your past or your present or indeed your future might be. But we do know that the God who walks with us in surprising ways in those liminal spaces will always give us the opportunity of adventure, the adventure of learning, the adventure of growing and the adventure of sharing his grace and his love and his mercy and his presence even in the craziest moments, even in the loneliest moments even in the darkest liminal spaces of in-between, even in the longest times of waiting. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Gracious, generous God, we thank you for your presence with us every day. We thank you that you sometimes surprise us in the way that we become aware of your presence. Uh, we thank you for the way that you are always in the space to grow us and develop us, even through what appear to be the toughest times and particularly through those times that are actually the toughest times. We thank you that nothing separates us from your love in your son. Help us in the waiting to reach out to you. Help us to never deny even the hardest moment and time and experience as an opportunity for you to develop our soul, our spirit, our resilience, our story as we are wound into your great big story of the kingdom and of the universe. Thank you for your love and your involvement in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.